verse by verse, phrase by phrase, we come this morning to chapter 2, verse 14. And I want to read through 18, though we won't get through all of it today. We'll pick it up next week. But this morning, I want for us to read and I want you to listen for what is a distinguishing mark of Christians and, and how is it that that communicates to the world that we're followers of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 14 through 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Well, do you see it? Do you see what it is that marks a Christian as different from the world? Verse 14 calls us, here it is, to do all things without grumbling or disputing. The New King James says to do all things without complaining and disputing. The New International Version says do everything without grumbling or arguing. All right, so all these words are in the same genre. Complaining, grumbling, disputing, arguing. It's a, it's a clear command to us. Paul's calling those in Philippi not to complain or gripe or moan or bellyache or argue or dispute with one another. Rather, that we ought to rejoice what we see at the end of verse 18, but that comes later. But he says then, why are we supposed to do all these things? You do all these things without grumbling or complaining or so that, verse 15, you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. In other words, as you don't complain, the world will take notice of how different you are. Because the world loves to complain, and the world loves to argue, and loves to dispute about anything and everything that doesn't go their own way. Last Saturday evening, we were talking about this in our small groups. It's our small groups, a wonderful thing. We, we get together and we look forward to the text I will preach. It helps my sermon preparation. For that, I'm, I'm thankful. And we, we went through our five questions, right? What's the big idea of the text? How would the original hearers hear this? Where's Christ? What's surprising about the text? And finally, how do we apply the text? And those are, are just good questions, right, to work through. A Bible study with. And as we we're talking about the first two questions, Michelle Spates came up with two words. She came up with one that was wine in verse 14, and she came up with the other one, shine. She said something like this. We're big idea. We're like, we're, we're not supposed to whine, but instead we're supposed to shine. And so full credit to Michelle this morning for my outline and my sermon title this morning. Don't whine, but shine. Don't whine, but but shine. That's my title, my message this morning. And like last week, you work, God works. My two points this morning, same, same thing. Don't whine, but shine. Let's look at my first point, verse 14. Don't whine. That summarizes, right, these words. Grumbling, disputing, complaining, arguing, right? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Notice how exhaustive these words are. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. No wiggle room in these words. It doesn't say do many things without grumbling. 
Doesn't say do most things. Doesn't say have the reputation of being someone who rarely grumbles. No, it says do all things without grumbling or disputing. And I say that is a high, high call. Because quite frankly, we live in a world full of complaints. It's easy to find fault. In fact, this week I went to the, the Belvedere Oasis, I-90, to, to get a new iPass. I got a, a message in the, in the mail, snail mail that said, hey, your iPass is, is reaching end of life. You need to get a new one. And, and so as I approached the counter, I noticed a little sign. And uh, if we go to the next slide here, it should be there, right? Yeah, there's a sign. This is right. You can see this in Belvedere if you, if you go there. But there's a sign right there. And knowing I'm preaching on complaining and whining, I saw that right there. It says what? Yesterday was the deadline for all complaints. I like that. Yesterday was the deadline for all complaints. And, and so uh, I said to the guy, he didn't know I was preaching on it at all. Anything like I said, hey, I, I like your sign. And you know what he said? He said, yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> That's what he said. And so then I pulled out my iPod Touch and I, I got as close as I could and I took a little picture of that so I might share my joy with you about how it doesn't work because complaining is prevalent in our world. I mean, you don't have to think long and you'll find some things to complain about. You complain about the weather. You complain about the government. You complain about taxes. You complain about policies. You complain about the music on the radio. You can complain about the noise of your neighbor's snowplower. Snowblower. You can complain about the food that's served at the restaurant to you. You can complain about the hair that your daughter leaves in the sink every morning. You can complain about the advertisements on television. You can complain about the color of the carpet or the, the lousy service that you got at the library or the, the high price of gasoline or how your body hurts and you can, how, how, how it's too cold. And then, and then about six months from now, you're going to complain about, oh, it's too hot. Or you can complain about, whoa, it's too sunny out today, right? I can't even see with all this snow. But then pretty soon it's going to be cloudy. You're going to complain about all the clouds. It's, it's, too, it's too dry, right? You know, it's, and it's too wet. You just, that's, that's just, a, I'm sure that in your minds, you've got way more things that you can even think about, complain about. And here's what I find amazing about complaining is it doesn't matter how good we have it. We still will be discontent in some way. We still will find things to complain. The richest billionaire will complain that his helicopter was five minutes late to take him to the meeting. I'm like, you got a helicopter. What are you complaining about being five minutes late? You're probably the guy in charge anyway. They're not going to start until you get there either. Or, or, or the scratch on his Rolls Royce. You got a Rolls Royce. What are you complaining about? Right? And that might be inconceivable to us to complain about those things. We say we'd never complain about that, but it's just a matter of degrees. You think the woman working in the tea gardens in India making a dollar a day is really complaining about the, the lack of playing time that her little league coach is giving their son or daughter? They're like, Little League? You got Little League. Or do you think the guy living in the slums in Nairobi is complaining about the mess left around his house? He's saying, you got a house, dude. You don't have just a, a tin shack. You got a house. What are you complaining about? Or do you think the hungry child in Sudan is complaining about not wanting to eat his vegetables? We've got vegetables. Anyway, it's all about perspective. Again, this morning I want to read for you a little lesson out of the book that 
that uh, Yvonne and I wrote a couple weeks ago, kind of put it together and edited it, actually. And it's, uh, it's in the hands of some of you. You're proofreading it. I appreciate some of the feedback we got. We're trying to get it perfect. And then we'll print them all out and you'll all get them here in the next month or so. But I want to read from page four, Lessons from a Little Girl. Um, it says this, My sister and her husband have been foster parents to several children. One of them was a five-year-old girl. One day, this little girl was hungry and approached my sister as she was preparing dinner. She asked my sister for something to eat, and my sister told her, no, you can't have anything now because it's almost dinner time. And being hungry, this little girl blurted out, you don't care for me, and began to pout and cry. Immediately, my sister began to think of all the ways that this simply wasn't true. She said, what do you mean? We have taken you into our home. We have clothed you and fed you and provided medical care for you. We have included you in our family, taken you on vacation and extended our love towards you. If that's not love, then what is it? And as the words left my sister's mouth, they echoed right back into her own heart. And she said to me, at that moment I realized that I so often respond this way to God. He has done so much for me, and yet I often complain of His lack of care for me. May we all learn this lesson from this little girl and be aware of the great blessings that God has given in our lives. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Just a matter of degrees, a matter of, of perspective. And as Christians, we are called to live a complaint-free, grumble-free, disputing-free, arguing-free, and yes, whining-free life. Now, if your family is anything like my family, you know that this is a problem. Uh, in fact, many years ago, I heard a, a radio program that uh, greatly, greatly encouraged us. So I just want to play a, a, little, a little clip uh, for you. This is... Uh, off the radio, we downloaded it. And, and, and here, here's what we... Uh, let's see if I power this thing on. Here's, here's what we heard. Okay, it's about a two-minute clip. But I think uh, we put it on CD and we played it for our kids. And our kids love this. Okay, here it goes. Say goodbye. 
So we heard that, and we're like, "Wow, this this uh, this might be good." And um, so we we listened to the whole, and they they got us. Okay, we we bought the little book about whining will, and um, you know, I'll just tell you the story. The, the story is about this little boy, Will, who had a problem with whining, and and I pick up the the story in the middle of the book, and uh, here. He's got a picture of little Will. And what's he doing, kids? He's whining. And here's what it says. It says, Will was really thirsty. Mommy, I want some juice. Will whined. Sweetheart, said Mom, bending down to meet Will's eyes. Are you asking for juice with self-control? Will folded his arms. But I'm really thirsty. Here's Mom. Being a good mom. Will, honey, God wants you to have self-control even with your voice, Mom explained. I will never give you what you want when you whine. So Mom lifted Will into her arms. Will, I love you too much to allow you to speak foolishly. I'm going to help you learn to speak the right way. And here it is. It says, you may wear the no-wine watch, Mom said. As she helped Will fasten it to her wrist. When the buzzer goes off in three minutes, you may come back and ask for juice with your self-controlled voice, Mom explained. And so the idea here is that uh, Will then went, sat on the couch for three long minutes to pass when the alarm sounded on his little watch. He returned, asked for a drink of water with a self-controlled voice. Mom had some water waiting for him and gave it there and and Will learned self-control, and Mom was happy, and Will was happy. And I just say, what a great model for helping deal with, with whining. In fact, we were so impressed that day that we, we bought our little no-whining watch. And uh, basically, you, you press the buttons, and it counts down from three minutes. And then when it's, when it's done, it, the battery's out now. It doesn't work anymore, but about as much as no-whining works in our home as well. So... Um, but that's that's what it does, and um, yeah, we use this with some of our kids. Steffi, we use this with you, right? Yeah. yeah. Did, did you use this with David? Maybe a little bit. Battery was, <laughs> battery was dead for for that time. But <clears throat> if you have a problem with this in your home, I would encourage you. You can go right now to nomorewhining.org and purchase these wonderful book and um, and little watch and. Uh, just encourage you to do that. But you know what? It has helped in our home, but it hasn't solved the problem of complaining. In, in fact, even last night at dinner, I said, okay, guys, I'm preaching on complaining tomorrow. What, what do you complain about? What do you complain about? What do you complain about? And for the most part, there was no shortage of things we complained about. Each and every one of us had things there. And I trust that if you did that at your dinner table this afternoon you might find the same experience. What do you complain about? What do you complain about? What do you complain about? And this is not something to be taken lightly, by the way. I've kind of made some fun. I've kind of made some, some light. And we can, we can see the kids who are whining. Hey, he's looking at me funny. Hey, look at the French fries. But would I, I would contend that just like my sister learned from the little girl that she was just like her, I would say that we are just like that before God's eyes many times. Whining 
and complaining, and we should not take this lightly. In fact, look at our text last week. Verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I spoke last week about how long and hard we ought to labor in our sanctification. We should work with fear and trembling is what verse 12 says. Knowing that ultimately it is a work of the Lord in our life to sanctify us. And this week comes the very first practical application. If last week you said, Amen, Amen, I'm going to work hard at my sanctification because I'm going to work out my salvation, right? How it is I should flesh this out because I know that God is is working in me and I'm I'm just going to trust Him and God help me to, to walk in an obedient way. If that was your heart last week, well then here's the very first thing that we come upon this week is that we shouldn't complain. We shouldn't dispute. And so I thought about verse 14 in light of verses 12 and 13. I was surprised. This is question number four of our Bible study. I was, I was really shocked and surprised. But why would you mention whining? I mean, after saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's God who's at work in you. If I were to give some practical counsel and advice, I'm not sure that I would say, don't whine. I think that I might say more things like this. Seek the Lord and seek His ways. Read His Word. Pray and obey and follow Him. But grumbling and complaining doesn't really come to my mind. So why would Paul, here in verse 14, come instantly, first off, to something practical in pursuing our sanctification like complaining and whining? Well, here's why. In some measure, I do think it ties back to the key of the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 27, when he says this, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ." So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Walk worthy of the gospel with which you've been called. And how does that flesh itself out? In a unified walk in the body of Christ. Paul said, chapter 2, verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, There it is, right? United in spirit. One purpose. One body. So how how does walking worthy of the Gospel mean? It means unity. He's brought this up on several occasions. And and that's the great context about Philippians. Everything else is how to to obtain that. Do so through humility. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Right? How do you obtain unity? It's only through humility. And I would say, by the way, that humility is not looking at my own interests, but looking at the interests of others. And when do you whine and complain? Precisely when I'm looking at my interests above other people's interests. He's looking at me funny. I wanted french fries. Right? It's all about me, me. You always whine and complain about me, me, me. But the whole context is, no, we need to walk humbly in order to walk unified with the example, the great example of Jesus, right? Have this attitude in yourselves also in Christ, right? He humbled Himself. God becoming man, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon an old rugged cross. But God highly exalted Him. And so we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? Do all things without grumbling, right? Don't, don't look at your own interests, 
Right? Look at those of, of Christ Jesus and, and live in a unified way. And I say this, that nothing destroys the unity of the church like grumbling or disputing. You show me problems of a church where it's disunified, I will show you plenty of grumbling and disputing. Well, let's talk about what these words mean. First of all, grumbling. It's the Greek word gongudzo. It's an onomatopoetic word which means that it... Um, it, it means what it sounds, gongudzo, gongudzo, like this utter, this guttural gongudzo. It means literally to mutter or to murmur. Murmur is an onomatopoetic word, murmur, 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 gongudzo. The same thing. That's, that's, that's what it means. It works itself out complaining, works out in grumbling. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used a form of this word, often to describe the murmuring of the people of Israel after they came out of the land of Egypt. Do you remember how the Lord rescued them with a mighty hand performing the ten plagues? Just an awesome display of God's power. And they come out and um, the Egyptians pursue them and are swallowed up into the Red Sea so they die. And instantly in Exodus 15, I will sing to the Lord for He is highly exalted. The horse and the rider He's thrown into the sea. And they sing this whole song about how triumphant God has been to rescue us and redeem us. And He's been so mighty and wonderful. Yay, God is what they're saying. And from best I can tell, within a week, they were in the wilderness and found no water and were complaining over the bitter waters of Marah. We read in Exodus 15:24. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So God sweetened the water and they could drink. <laughs> Soon afterwards, they found themselves hungry. And the whole congregation, Exodus 16:2, of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And they said this, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For You have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And so God gave them manna, this fine flake-like substance to eat. And you'd think by now they would have learned a thing or two. And yet, when they come again soon afterwards, they're without water. And rather than saying, you know what, God has trusted, God has provided for us before. These ten plagues, He's taught, brought us out of Egypt. He protected us with a pillar of cloud and fire. He brought us to the Red Sea. He brought that over. Boy, when, when that water was bitter, He made it sweet. Boy, we didn't have any meat to eat. He gave us, right, this manna to sustain us. And we don't have water now, but we, we can trust the Lord praising Him. His deliverance will come as it always has. But no, they didn't do that. They grumbled against Moses. And said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children our livestock with thirst? God shows His great patience and still provides for them. That's gongudzo. Murmuring, grumbling, complaining against the Lord, but also against the leader, against Moses. And not only was that dishonoring to the Lord, but I, I do believe it created disunity and discontentment and disharmony among the people of, of Israel. Well, that's the first word. Grumbling, murmuring, complaining, expressing discontent. Here's the second word. is disputing. Greek word here, dialogizmos. Um, the main idea here is, is, to, is to think and to muse and to reason. Now, that can be a good word. That can be a, a, a good thing. Like Mary, when she's greeted by the angel, she kept pondering these things in her heart. She just dialogizmos. She, she, just, she just thought about them. Like, what, what does it mean? And when John the Baptist came on the scene, people were wondering in their hearts as to whether he was the Christ. They were, they were thinking, is he really the Christ? Is he? And they're kind of, kind of processing through that and trying to figure him out. That, that's, all, that's a good thing. 
But more often than not, this word describes a sin. Most of its uses describe it as a bad thing. Jesus said, out of the heart come your evil thoughts, your, 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 your thinking, your reasoning. Paul said, Romans 1.21, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him, ask God, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. That is, in their thinking, in their musing, and, and they, they thought wrongly. And here in Philippians, thinking or reasoning has to do with critical thinking, I think, that leads people to doubt others in the church. That's why the ESV, in the original translation, 2001-2005 editions, translated this questionings. Do all things without grumbling or questionings. Kind of, and, and, you, and you get the subversive feel of, of this word. And this is how it works in a congregation, right? Something's being done or, or something's not being done and someone disagrees with it. And so they think about it and they ponder it over in their mind. And then what happens is they begin to share their discontent with other people. They hadn't really thought about it before, but, but now they said, yeah, well, maybe, maybe that is right. And, they, and then, then they got questions in their minds. They began thinking about it. And it doesn't quite seem right to them either. And so they start sharing it with other people. And pretty soon the questioning and doubting begins to spread like a cancer. And pretty soon disunity develops. And I say God hates it. How much of the New Testament is focused upon unity and walking rightly in the church? Now that's not to say that we ought to just be Pollyanna-ish and see everything on the positive light in the church. It's not to say that we should follow leaders without questioning at all and drink the Kool-Aid to our death. No, there's room for asking questions to figure out what's going on. But I'll say this, often those who ask such questions have no interest in being part of the solution. That's what I have found. I've seen it many times as a pastor. People come, spoke some concern about the church. I welcome the discussion. Many times, most of the time, they're exactly right. But then when I try to say, okay, that's a problem. How about, how about, would you like to maybe help in this area? Oh, no, no, no. That's not my problem. <laughs> that's you. I just want to complain. I just want to bring it up. I received an email recently from a, a pastor friend who was talking about problems in the church. And it's not necessarily talking about grumbling or complaining, but it, it, it kind of hits the same thing. He said this, I think that one of the most traumatic injuries to the body of Christ has been the infusion of democratic ideals into the local church. Few people see it as a, a congregation of believers that are to function as a body that reflects the larger body of Christ. Consequently, leaders are often suspected even if they have the purest of motives. And though we are blessed at our church, he said, with relatively good health, Regarding an understanding of the church, there are always those who cannot help but think that the leadership has something up its sleeve. I think that this is the innate knee-jerk reaction of a society that sold its soul to individualism and takes great pride in resisting authority on principle. Like, there's the authority. Oh, something's bad. We've got to resist that. There's got to be something wrong with that. And that, and that what that does, it just kind of helps to fracture things. Right? You see, leadership makes some sort of decision. If some want to resist the authorities and start poking holes in the action, they start attacking the ulterior motives, decisions, and it starts spreading through the church and disunity happens. And Paul says that none of this should happen in the church. And his argument, the reason why, comes in verse 15, right? So that you will prove yourselves, right? You church, you in Philippi will prove yourselves. You will demonstrate yourself. You will become, you will show yourself. 
to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. In other words, if you have come to Christ and you have trusted in Him, you are a child of God by faith. He's removed your sin. He's transformed you, right? If anyone's in Christ, is a new creation. And, and part of being new and being transformed is that children should act like their father. Children should act like their Lord. We should follow in those ways. And your actions then will shine forth in the world. And God is inherently a non-complainer. Or as we're saying this morning, don't whine, but shine. So the negative first and now, now the positive about shining and I just say this, if you don't utter grumblings and disputing, you will stand out in the world today. You'll just be different. I know that oftentimes just small talk kind of around people, it's hard to be edifying and affirming and building up. It's easy to tear down. Oh, you see that? Oh, yeah, that was really bad. Or you see, oh, yeah, that was really bad. And almost because what it does, it lifts you up because you're all of a sudden discerning about the badness in other things. And you're so smart because you can see all the bad things all around. And Rush Limbaugh has made millions doing this. And many have followed him. And newscasts, right? What, are the, what, what newscast gets the highest ratings? The, the newscast gets the highest ratings are, are those that can point out the bad every other place. They complain and say all about the bad. Now, there's certainly a place for that. But I'm just saying that if you don't complain, you will stand out in the world. A few weeks ago, my daughter was playing a volleyball tournament at uh, SportsCore. And Yvonne and I took her in the morning to play. Um, started, had to be there at 7.30 and the first game started at 8. And we watched the first game. And, and as soon as we sat down in the bleachers to watch the game, some small talk started taking place. I was sitting here and Yvonne was sitting here. And... And we had a, another mother was, was right here, a mother of someone from another team. And then a father of a, a daughter from a, another team were, were right there. And they engaged us in some conversation. And um, they uh, you know, began asking just some questions. Well, how's, how's your team? How's your coach? And uh, I, I responded in a way that I respond when it comes to my kids and their activities. Uh, I, I tried to say this. I'm not sure if I got through it all, but... I said something like this, you know, we're so thankful for Hannah to have an opportunity that we're nothing but supportive for the coach. I know how hard leadership is. I know how hard it is to please everyone. I've been in that situation and I know that she's trying to do her best. So she's going to hear nothing but support and encouragement from me. And I'll just, she can do what she wants. Um, that was not, that was not the answer that these folks wanted to hear. Because they were extremely dissatisfied with their coach. And they began to list problem after problem after problem after problem with their coach and their team. In fact, I don't, I don't think I've heard anybody complain about anything as strong as those people. You think so? I mean, throughout the entire game, they just nagged on everything that was wrong. I mean, they said things like this. Well, see how your coach, your coach is standing up and encouraging the girls. What a, look, look at Arsha just sitting down and she's not saying anything to the girls. And um, look at your coach. She's, she's huddled around the team. Where, where's our coach? Right? To go to the bathroom? Where, where's our coach? Our coach isn't here. Did your coach ever communicate with you? We never hear anything from our coach. Yeah, I went to watch practice the other day, and boy, it looked totally disorganized. And some of the drills, I don't understand some of the drills they were doing. In fact, he talked about you make a mistake, and, and she made the girls like spin around. He's <laughs> like, what are you doing that for? You know, have you, have you been to your coach's? Have you been to your daughter's practice? 
Well, how much is your team won? Our team is terrible. In fact, we consider a moral victory if we get to 10 points. We're like, yes, we got to 10. Because 25 wins the game, right? Yes. And, and we sat through maybe an hour and 15 minutes of this. Yeah, no exaggeration, was it? No exaggeration. It went on and on. After the match, we walked out of there relieved. We went home. Hannah kept playing. And then, then we came. I came only at, at the end. And... Uh, same people were sitting in the same places, and I made the mistake to sit in the same place also. Right? <laughs> it's silly me. Um, but I asked them, hey, have you been sitting here the whole game? They said, no, they've been up, but they happen, they really in the same place right up against the back wall. And uh, having thought about it from home a little bit, I, I began to poke and prod, right? Well, have you spoken to Pat, who's in charge of everything about this? Uh, are there any good qualities in your coach at all? Like, I saw some things, and I pointed out, I mean, like, they, they, they had something not go so well, or it was after the game. I said, look, she's sitting, and they're all around in a circle, and they're talking. I think that's a good thing, don't you think? And, and they were, like, blinded. They, they couldn't hear that. And uh, I said, well, I tell you what, if things are so bad, how about you volunteering, coach? Well, that was not going to happen, that's for sure. <laughs> well, my comments didn't stop them too much. But here, here's the interesting thing. He says, I'm talking to these two people here. There was a third father, and he was down about two rows in front and, and over. So he was, he, he was within earshot. He heard what was going on. But he was there, and uh, I think he identified himself. And he was there in the morning and in the afternoon. Same place, okay? Maybe they give out tickets, and you've got to find the exact place you've got to sit in these booths. I'm not sure. But he, he was sitting there, and he didn't say a word. No word of complaint. Um... I heard him speak a little bit, but he didn't join in, right? When you were there, he did not join in at all, said nothing derogatory. He didn't say anything, okay? He didn't say anything derogatory about the coach or anything. And um, I, I didn't have an opportunity to speak with him, all right? So it's not like some, some great story. But I'm telling you, he stood out because he just kept his mouth shut. And I saw that and I took notice and I would not be surprised he's a believer in Christ, just with a sanctified perspective of things. Now, I'm not saying he is, but I'm just saying that not complaining in a world of complaining parents is something that's different. And you'll stand out too when, when people around you are complaining about something and you just, you just refuse to enter into that conversation. You'll stand out. But that's the idea here, verse 15, right? So that, do it all without grumbling or disputing, and so that you prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And against the background of darkness, light shines forth brilliantly. And the blackness of this verse is clear. We have here a crooked and perverse generation. And if that was true in Paul's day, certainly it's true in, in our day. Love for God in our society is all but lost. We're taking God out of everything in the public sphere. Sensuality rules the media. Our passions are for the rich and famous rather than for the poor and mistreated. This means, by the way, that we have great opportunity to shine as lights in our world. The darker the background, the brighter the light. And we can be that bright light. And we can make an impact with that bright light. Isn't that the very thing that, that made Paul stand out in the jail in Philippi? 
I mean, Paul brought the light of the gospel of Christ to Philippi. Right? And uh, then at one point, the slave girl had a demon in her. He cast it out. But her masters who were making um, profit by her because she had a demon could tell the future were irate. And so they seized Paul and Silas and these owners dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. They brought false accusations against them to the chief magistrates. They stirred the crowd against them and it all led Paul and Silas being beaten with rods and cast into prison. Paul and Silas had every right to complain. They'd been treated unjustly. They'd done a good deed. They'd helped change the life of this slave girl. And they were punished for it. They were beaten without a cause. And how do you think they responded? Do you remember how they responded? They didn't sit in the, in the jail cell and grouse about all the bad things happening. No. They were rejoicing. Acts 16.25 In the prison they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God against the dark circumstance of their life. Their light shined forth. And the prisoners, I believe, took notice, right? When the earthquake broke, the prisoners stayed. Have you ever thought about that? What prisoner do you know of or can think of who, when the gate's wide open and they're free to go in the cover of dark, will just sit there? Maybe Paul had done something to change them. But the jailer certainly took notice. When the earthquake took place, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he, Paul and Silas directed them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved, you and your household. Isn't it interesting that Paul then directed his attention to Jesus, whose light shined in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as well. Jesus called the society he lived in an evil and adulterous generation. And it proved to be true. When Jesus was betrayed, He was betrayed by a friend. Right? The, the natural consequence of that generation. When Jesus was arrested, He was arrested without warrant. Jesus faced proceedings of an illegal trial hastily begun and carried out at night. Jesus was condemned unjustly by the Sanhedrin. He was mocked and insulted and beaten by the, the Roman soldiers without cause. He was denied justice by Pontius Pilate, the, the one who should have given justice to Jesus. He was crucified upon a cross. While upon the cross, He was mocked by those who passed by, by the religious leaders, even by the prisoners, the, the, the criminals who were crucified with Him. And then, Jesus took God's wrath for us. Totally unfair. Totally unjust. All in accordance with the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 7. Like a lamb is led to slaughter, like a sheep is silent before his ear, hearers, shears, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus did not complain at any of it. Peter puts it far more eloquently than I ever could. For you've been called for this purpose. 1 Peter 2, 21. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Right? We are to follow in the steps of Jesus. His example is our example, which is the example right here. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats. But He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to entrust ourselves to the Lord. 
that judges righteously. Jesus had all the reason in the world to expose the injustice that was taking place against Him and all around Him. He, he had reason to argue His case before the Sanhedrin. And with His wisdom, He certainly would have won the case. He certainly would have been let free. And yet, through it all, Jesus never complained or grumbled or murmured. Oh, He sought the Father in prayer. Father, if, if it possible, let this cup pass from Me. Yet, not what I will, but what You will. It's not that Jesus didn't think about these things. It's not that He... He didn't have somewhat of a dread in, in what was going to go on. Yes, he had a joy, but he had a difficulty in what's, what's going on there. But it never manifests itself in complaining. Not once. Instead, 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. It's the Gospel in which we are called to rejoice in is the very means by which we're forgiven of our sin, right? Like the sins of complaining and disputing and arguing and murmuring and grumbling. And this, by the way, is the word of life that Paul speaks about in verse 16. And we're just going to look at that first phrase. I'll mention it just today. Holding fast the word of life. How can you obey verse 15? Only by obeying verse 16. Verse 15 speaks about how we will be children of God above reproach. In which, how we do that? Only by holding fast the word of life. Holding fast the gospel. Holding fast what Jesus has done for our souls. Holding fast that God is the one who's working out our salvation within us. It's the only way that we can be blameless and innocent in this crooked and perverse generation. When you hold fast to the Gospel, when you, when you cling to everything that Jesus has done for our souls at Calvary, it's only there you'll find the strength not to whine. And Paul says, don't whine, but shine. Well, after a small group last Sunday night, we discussed this passage. Jeff Matheny went home. He's not here today, but he went home and stayed up late writing out this. He had this big idea of what he wanted me to share this morning. And um, he, he wrote this script for a movie trailer and um, about these verses. And he said, I want SR to do a movie trailer. Well, SR was too busy to do the movie trailer. But I want you just to, as I read this, right, just picture in your mind what's going to happen. Okay, just, just picture in your mind this um, movie trailer. And I, I think it'll make sense. This is how I'm going to end my message here. So he says, all, all black slides... No voice, just words. It says, Rock Valley Bible Church, in association with Paul's letters to the Philippians, present a message coming to a congregation near you. And then bad slides, he says, timed about three seconds each slide. In the midst of a crooked, and then probably with a radio voice, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, there come a people who do all things without grumbling or disputing. They are held blameless and innocent children of God without reproach. Then start beams of, of light slides and one light followed another, each showing a different part of the cross until the entire cross is lit. They shine as lights in the world holding fast to the Word of life. Are you among them? That'd be a great movie to watch, huh? But it ends with a great question. Are you among them? Are you among those who 
Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Or is grumbling and disputing part of your, your every life? I just encourage you to seek the Lord for a, a non-grumbling, a non-whining life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would help us say goodbye to whining. How easy is it to control it in our kids or want to control it? How easy is it to detect in the lives of our kids? And yet, Lord, I would pray that You might help us to see our own sin. You might help to show how much it is an affront to You. Lord, to gripe and grumble and complain at all the, the good things that You've given us. I would pray, Lord, for You to continue to maintain the unity of Rock Valley Bible Church for the glory of Christ, for the good of our own souls. Lord, it's really got to be a, a work of You. You're the One who works in us both to will and to work for Your good pleasure. That's why we pray, God, so work within us. Give us the strength to hold fast to the Word of life. Give us strength to rejoice in the Gospel, the very Gospel that's going to empower us to do these things. Lord, we are thankful for Jesus who's done everything. And I pray as we start the service, may we end the service. Oh Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. So consecrate our lives, O oh Lord. Help us in these ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.